my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 10. Thanks for coming on this journey, Season 5, Episode 10. I'm so excited to get you the guest today, AJ Sherrill. We're going to be talking about Enneagram, self-awareness, self-improvement even perhaps, but we're going deeper than that into how Christians can use Enneagrams as a pathway to spiritual growth. We're going to talk a lot about spiritual formation, aka discipleship today. So, hey, speaking of discipleship, I have a group on Facebook all about that. Would love you to join. It's called Digital Church. And if you search that on Facebook or follow the link below, you're going to get to us. And it's a group we'd love you to join if you're interested in talking about spiritual formation in a digital age. We talk about digital discipleship and we're talking about how to reach people and grow them as Christians and think critically about that. So if you want to share articles, questions, resources, and glean from others who are doing the same, that's an amazing group of leaders. would love for you to join us there. Click on that link below. Thanks, of course, um, to our amazing sponsors who are bringing this conversation with AJ Sherrill to you today. Uh, Wycliffe College, the school that I went to, it's an evangelical seminary of theology at the University of Toronto. So you get a degree from the University of Toronto, which is one of the top universities in the world. Uh, one of the reasons I chose to go there is just because it's such a reputable, academic, robust education, but it's surprisingly affordable because it's a public, not private university. So I encourage you to check it out. If you go to wickliffecollege.ca slash digital, there's a place there you can click and not just explore the website, but also get some free swag sent to you in the mail. Who doesn't want free swag? Who doesn't want mail? Mail is fun unless it's bills. So should go to wickliffecollege.ca, follow the link below, and uh, you can find that. Thanks also, of course, to Compassion Canada. I mean, this crazy time we seem still stuck in this winter of COVID-19. They're continuing to rally the church around the needs of the poor, the needs of the most vulnerable. And there's ways that we can get involved. If you go to compassion.ca, I'll also link to compassion.com down below in case you're in a more international place, you can find the local compassion outlet uh, for you there. But they're doing all kinds of things to, to really battle COVID-19 that is trying to stop efforts to end poverty. I mean, COVID-19 has had huge effects on people around the world, and it's a privilege as the church to rise up and do something about it, not just for how it's affected us and our communities, but also how it's affected people who didn't have much left to lose. So I encourage you to go to the website and see how you can get involved. Okay, AJ Sherrill, if you don't know him, he was the lead pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, That also happens to be the church that ages ago Rob Bell came out of, if that church name sounds familiar. AJ Sherrill uh, has been the lead teaching pastor there, but now he's moved on. Actually, he's serving at St. Peter's Church, South Carolina. He's moved into an Anglican church. We're going to talk a little bit about that on the podcast. But we have that in common through Wycliffe College. I also studied with our Anglican friends. And so he's also an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he teaches all kinds of courses on preaching and Enneagram and just workshops across the country. So you're going to love this conversation with A.J. Sherrill. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world. 
So we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Hey, AJ, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really just so glad to have you today. Yeah, it's an honor to be in a conversation, especially with Canadians, the peaceful people, because we're about to enter into a crazy election moment and we need y'all's peace to descend yeah. upon our land. Yeah, wow. Well, when this when this podcast comes out, we will all know what happened. Mm. Uh, I don't November. know. I think it may take two years to yeah. get to the bottom of that. <laughs> It'll take historians decades to unravel. <laughs> yeah, we love drama here. We love drama. Oh man! Now, where are you at? By the way, can you? Uh, we're we're maybe going too far ahead of ourselves on this. Like, where are you? You you were in Michigan, but you're no longer in Michigan. Tell us what's going on with your life. Yeah, when COVID hit, um, my bride Elena was. We were pastoring a church in Grand Rapids called Mars Hill Bible Church, and um, we had sort of rebuilt the plane midair over the last four years, and it was just beautiful, great leadership. Um, just a really healthy church. And when COVID hit, my wife was like, Hey, I think we should move back to the South, um, mm. where our mothers are who are aging. Wow. And out of nowhere, we had sort of a flurry of invitations. And so we ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. And I, um, have been sort of flirting with Anglicanism for about a decade. And so this invitation was for sort of a low church, which means like informal Anglican sort of church that loves, the Holy Spirit and also validates women ordination. And so it was just a really good fit for us. And so we jumped at the opportunity. And so we've been doing that here for the last few months and are loving it. Wow. So um, you wouldn't know this, but this podcast is sponsored by an Anglican seminary, uh, which awesome. is one that I attended. Um, I don't come from an Anglican. I come from what I would call a classical evangelical background myself. But for that reason, I chose to study my master's at an evangelical Anglican seminary in Toronto called Wycliffe College. And I did that because I wanted something of what Anglicans had that I had not received myself. So um, so maybe now we're, we can speak a little bit of the same language about this, but I'm so curious now. Tell me what attracts you to that or what... Um, what could we learn from Anglicans or Episcopals that we haven't uh, we haven't maybe captured in the evangelical church lately? Yeah, I think the evangelical church brings a lot of good things, but I think there's an over reliance on like spontaneity and novelty, mm. where like the goal is to like outdo last week's thing or whatever, right? So whether you're preaching or it's music or whatever, whatever. And I think what I learned from some of these other like classical traditions. Um, Anglicanism being the one we're talking about right now is a sort of rootedness that comes with a, a tethering mm. to the past. So I like, you know, some of the language that people use is trellis and vine. We obviously want the vine of the life of Christ burgeoning in our churches. And so there's nothing wrong with novelty, nothing wrong with spontaneity. But I think if it's not tethered to um, something deeper than itself, it can sort of lose its way, become personality driven. Um, just have expectations that are not healthy on itself. Um, and so Anglicanism has just been a really great feeder for me with the church calendar, the book of common prayer, something that I can grab onto a historicity of my faith. That's larger than just what happened 10 minutes ago or the latest book or fad. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I picked up I did, before we started recording, I said to you, you'd just been in Toronto within the last year, you know, bef- when we could still, c- when Americans could still come to Canada. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, you just down the road from me, you did a workshop weekend at uh, Little Trinity Anglican Church. And, um, and that's where my parents started their relationship together mm. at this little Anglican church. So I have my mom's, I'm bringing it up just to say, I have my mom's prayer book from the 1960s uh, wow. prayer book and I've been using it um, yeah. in a, a, a monthly prayer practice. I lead um, called infinitum and whatever we do this prayer thing every month and people come from all over the world to join us on the internet to do this thing. And, uh, but, but the point of it is that it's her prayer book, but she, my mother has prayed these prayers, but not just my mother, that, uh, Mm. generations of the church have all prayed these same prayers. Cause aren't we all just kind of needing to say the same things to God sometimes? (laughs) I I think sometimes, and you know, when I've been through my hardest seasons, um, with, you know, cancer in my family and divorce in my parents and just some really desperate seasons, even vocational failure, uh, uh, in my late twenties, I realized that my faith wasn't deep enough to sustain hardship. And so sometimes when you can dig that treasure trove up and to see how the saints before us have stewarded faith in the midst of the bubonic plague or in the midst of persecution, um, you really feel like you're in concert with a larger story than just, um, what's sort of happening in non-denominational megachurch world. And that is really compelling for me. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, within that, I, I love the, I would say that like the evangelical worship service is like my mother tongue. Um, mm-hmm. but there's something we learn when we explore a new language. Um, we, it's a, literally a new angle or approach. Um, um, so you ended up, you've ended up now leading that kind of a church. Are you then within a structure, like you have bishops and you have, um, like oversight in this whole, you know, Episcopal system that you've entered into? Do you wear the robe? Yeah, I don't. No, ours is really, like I said, it's low church. Our um, diocese is not tethered to a geography. I'm in a diocese called C4SO, which means churches for the sake of others. Uh, The church I lead is called St. Peter's Church. Um, And it is really based on mission. So the idea is how do we be faithfully Anglican, but really do that in a way that's missionally contextual? to make sure that our primary people we're trying to serve are our neighbors. And so like, if the collar's helpful, wear it. Um, if the, you know, all these sort of accoutrements that have developed over time, we like those, but at the same time, we're not married to those. Um, mm-hmm. We are wanting to be discerning about how to love our neighbors well and contextualize the gospel without losing fundamental Anglicanism in the midst of mm-hmm. that. And so that's a tightrope to walk, um, but it's one, I like the tension of that. Yeah. Do you feel like you make nobody happy then? <laughs> the Sometimes. old and, and, <laughs> Yes. That is a conversation we are constantly in. And so, but you know, the fruit of our ministry has been really beautiful over these last few years. So we feel like the Lord's doing something there. And so um, we feel like we're, we're onto something, what, what, what's happening here. Hmm. I mean, the, the conversation that um, I really want to circle around with you today, it, it comes, it comes inspired out of the book you wrote, the Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, um, which you've written other books, but this is, you know, I think your most recent is my understanding and Enneagram so hot right now. You know, people have wanted to talk about it for the last 
a few years. But what I really want to talk about is spiritual formation. And so, yes, let's talk about Enneagram. Um, but I mean, we're in this time of uh, COVID. Everything has gone digital. The church has gone online primarily um, for all of its the work that it did, uh, you know, the services, the small groups, so whatever. Um, what are you sort of observing right now? What are you seeing as um, the ways we are being formed <laughs> in the midst of this weird year that we've just gone through? I mean, there's so much to say about that. I'll start with like a church gathering conversation. You know, there's that famous passage from Amos chapter five, I think, where God's like, I'm tired of your meetings and your sacrifices. I want you to do justice and mercy. Um, I think that's been really good medicine if there is a silver lining to this pandemic. And that I don't think that means we should stop gathering or that somehow the gatherings don't matter or something like that. I think it's, it's God's way of telling a overly religious context that you have over-identified and over-emphasized one day of the week for a one to two hour segment to the neglect of the rest of your life. And I think what people are realizing right now about their own spirituality, it's like a mirror this pandemic has been. Do you have a life with God or do you over rely on the Sunday thing or whatever to broker that for you? And um, I think that's the conversation that this digital conversation is trying to interject is that there's a life with God that God is inviting us into that includes Sunday, but transcends Sunday into every sort of nook and cranny of our lives where God is radically available. And so I get fired up around helping people design a rule of life or spiritual practices where they can have habits that help rewire their neurology their emotional trauma, the way in which they're showing up in the world with their kids or their neighbors, all that sort of stuff is the conversation that I think this pandemic has forced us to have is are, are we agile to pursue God outside of the reliance of a Sunday gathering? And so I think a lot of things are being um, tweaked right now. And I'll be curious to see what happens on the backside of this, of like, what people's spirituality and what their well-being looks like. So lots of stuff is being rethought at this moment. Yeah. Well, even just um, as at the time of our recording here, uh, the stats that just came out from Barna this week, I don't know, or in the last week, uh, I don't know if you saw them, but it was this interesting juxtaposition between the baby boomers, something like 70-something 70, 70 of baby boomer gen is saying they want to come back to primarily physically meeting. And then you look at the millennial Gen Z and it's something like 30%, 40%. I'm butchering it. I think it's 41% or something. So it's, mm -hmm. sorry, the, the difference is is significant amount of percent <laughs> between what the baby boomers want out of their spiritual experience, their religious experience, and what the next younger gen is saying. Like, actually, this isn't like the main thing for me. I don't really see myself coming back in the way you wanted me to come back. Um, I don't know if mm. you've seen those stats. Have you had a chance to kind of chew on what, <laughs> um, like there's so much implication to that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's not surprising. I mean, I think we were sort of seeing that anyway before the pandemic, 
But um, I think that there are probably really good reasons that the boomers want to come back and probably reasons that might be um, over-reliant on Sundays. And then it's the same, I think, for you know the emerging generations where there's probably some good things, like such as the belief that everything is spiritual, that God is everywhere. You know, like my predecessor at Mars Hill, Rob Bell, was really helpful in popularizing the reality that God is available outside of Sundays. And I think emerging generations have tapped into that. But I also think that there's a sense of hyper-individualism that emerging generations are on where they don't actually need to show up in corporate worship. It's like them and Jesus, and I'm, I can easily meet God on a mountain as I can in the church. Um, and so many of them don't see their primary community anymore anyway as the local body of Christ. And I think that's one of the things that over time is really going to trip us up when we don't have spiritual companions that we worship with that can help us in times of need to navigate all of the mind, the minefields of life. Yeah. Um, so I see some up and downside to both perspectives. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. Well, and I think, um, as you've said, this brokering that's been done um, in the North American church, especially, or the Western church, whatever we want to call it, of this, the church brokering, like we talk about we're a kingdom of priests, but actually we still do heavily, even not just as, as Catholics, Anglicans, Evangelical, Protestant, whatever, this leaning into the leader to do the work for us. And then, uh, you know, I live with a, a roommate and the the roommate was saying she goes to um, you know, a big known church, if I were to say the name. And, um, you know, she's just saying like, yeah, like they did, you know, I now have to decide if this is my thing or they were just doing the thing for me. Like, or mm. she, she said something like, it struck me. She said, cause she's, I'm, I've kind of, I'm in this, maybe same as you, the quote unquote professional Christians. My, my career is within ministry, but for, for my roommate, she's just a normal person <laughs> who loves Jesus. And she says something like, you know, uh, just, I, I'm on my own here. I have to do it on my own. And, and that is such a beautiful thing. I mean, if there are silver linings, there's gotta be a few in this pandemic. And I think that's one of them. And, you know, in some ways it's a mirror for us to look in and just to say, Hey, do we like what we see? And are there places yeah. for growth that though the enemy meant this for bad, um, the Lord can do good even out of a moment like we're in. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really excited about what can be. I'm I I certainly am excited about it because I think um there's so much opportunity to change now uh what we've been what has been broken. Like I I think of, of some formative times in my life I spent with church in Europe where most churches of our kind of flavor would have one paid employee or none. You know, everyone's volunteering their time. Um, committees are meeting every couple months to make changes or decisions. The pastor also works full time at a bank or whatever. Like there's not enough money to do this professional Christian stuff. And so the people of the church have to be the church and, and uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. (laughs) Um, So I hope that, I hope that it can continue. But um, I mean, as we talk about, um, we lean towards your book, this Enneagram stuff. Um, for the few who are listening and don't know what the heck Enneagram is, can you give us a give us a quick synopsis? What the heck is Enneagram? And then let's dive into that a little bit. And we'll, we'll, we'll start with what it's not. It's not the pentagram, so I don't know what you've heard, but we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll back off from that conversation. Um, the Enneagram is a personality theory that really digs around with your motives, even more so than your behavior. Most personality theories are great with your behavior, so it's like, 
what's manifested in the world, this sort of gets underneath all that stuff. And it helps you understand what's driving your behavior. And so the idea of it is that there are nine primary types and there are nuances within all of those. So don't feel pigeonholed, but there are nine primary types that we sort of present one more than the others. And um, that is the way in which we navigate life. Your, your, your personality, by the way, is not your identity. I think that's one of the misnomers is, well, I am a seven, or are you telling me I'm a four? Mm. It's like, sort of, but what I'm really telling you is you're a beloved child of God. That's your identity. Um, and you can't lose that. That's not up for negotiation. It was hardwired into your humanity when you were, when you were created. But personality is a strategy. So personality is not an identity. Personality is a strategy, and it's a strategy that we use to cope and to thrive in a beautiful and broken world. So the types are basically strategies that we have bought into to try to navigate the complexities of this world. And it's why we're different, because through our genetic um, through our genetics, and but also through our, our nurturing throughout life, we have developed ways that we feel like are better for us to navigate this world. And um, it's what makes the uniqueness of our personalities. And they can be changed for growth and good, or they can be sort of uh, malformed into um, you know, distorted images of how God actually designed us to be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, my, I mean, we've all, I think if we're adults, we've at, whether at work or by choice, we've all done these personality tests. You know, it's the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, there's, oh mm-hmm. my goodness, there's so many of these, but, but Enneagram does this thing where it's trying to help you actually grow and change where it feels like a lot of the other ones are just like, this is how you are. Good luck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is in, you know, it's sort of like you're getting like great news about yourself, but also like terrible news and diagnosis about like what's wrong with you and how you affect other people in harmful ways or challenging ways. And then it also, I think then there's, but, but with Enneagram, there's, there's hope to grow or hope to, uh, change or be maybe more, maybe formed is, is maybe how you would use it. So, uh, yeah. What, what would you say to people who, who sort of, they're, they know a lot about their number, but I think a lot of people, that's as far as they get. Uh, they know their number and they know some, I don't know, some quirks about it. But what would you say would be like a next step out of that? Yeah. So I think the first one is, is disentangling identity and personality. So like when a lot of people find out those things about themselves that they've subconsciously spent a lot of time and energy hiding from themselves and from the world. Um, you know, one of the ways I remember father Richard Brewer, who I originally learned it from years ago, uh, said to me, you know, the way that you really know your core type is through humiliation. Mm. And if you're not careful with that, you know, cause some people will say, well, then AJ, is it a shaming tool? Should we be using it? It's like, it's not, if you don't see your personality as your identity, it's very shaming if your personality is your identity, because there's nothing you can do about that, right? And so a lot of people will take their personality type and say, oh, woe is me, and you're just trying to shame me. You're just trying to put me in a corner. And that's actually not what the tool is designed to do. It's designed to give you self-knowledge so that you can bring those things that you have subconsciously hidden out into the light and seek transformative breakthrough. And that's what's so beautiful about it is that we get to name that which is working and celebrate, but we also get to name that which is not working 
And we can mourn that and then work on what it means to grow within my personality because you can't change that which you don't name. If you keep things hidden away, it's difficult to grow. You're just in denial. And denial is not suitable fertile soil for breakthrough and for maturity. And so bringing that stuff out in the open, that's where the Enneagram gets interesting is where you can say, okay, this is how I present in the world. I, I see that. I think that's probably true. I'm feeling that in my gut, that sense of humiliation. Um, now, how can I adopt practices and rhythms in my life that are tailored to my personality to help challenge me toward growth? And that as a pastor is where I get really excited. I think the Enneagram is just a tool. It's not Jesus. And so if it's helpful, great. If you don't like it, who cares? Great. We're talking about Jesus here. And the Enneagram is just a tool that helps me get in touch with that, which is out of alignment with the kingdom of God to where I can then move closer toward Jesus and toward the kingdom. But the goal is Jesus here. It's not actually the Enneagram itself. Right. Yeah. Jesus is the point. Um, I mean, for, yeah, for people who are looking at Enneagram from um, a non-Christ a non-Jesus-y perspective, I suppose, Enneagram is the end in of itself. But yeah, we're talking about format. We're talking about spiritual formation. And so do you have an example? Because I think uh, I'd love to know like an example of someone, whether it's yourself or someone you could share a story about that has changed. Because <laughs> I always think of this little old lady I knew in my church who used to say, yeah, people can change, but not much. <laughs> So I'd love to, but I'd love to know, um, yeah, maybe an illustration of someone who's been able to identify something and grown in it. Maybe it's yourself or someone you've worked with. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a week with Fleming Rutledge a couple of years ago, who's a just incredible theologian in the Episcopal church. And she took me to task on this stuff because she is pretty resolute that, you know, spiritual practices are for astrology or something like that. And, um, and that people fundamentally can't change. And, um, you know, I, 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 she is older and probably wiser than me, but I still have some optimism and some hope that we are capable of, um, of transformation and growth. Um, otherwise what's the point of discipleship? Um, that being said, I'll, I'll just use myself. So I, I, I present uh, type three, um, which is an achiever performance-based, um, I live in my heart, in my emotions. And so getting you to like me, getting your podcast listeners to like me can be a real preoccupation for me. So it means that I'm willing to compromise my core convictions at times mm -hmm. if it means I can manipulate the way you feel about me. Mm -hmm. So what that means for me is that I'm not secure in my identity. I don't believe my belovedness. And so I have to go out there and, uh, and, and get your affirmation over the way I can perform and that hopefully you will think I'm worthy of your love and your affection and your admiration. So like getting the next degree, writing the next book, speaking on whatever stage, all that stuff in my craft um, becomes very important because I can, I can sort of grow my identity, right? And that's a myth. Henry Nowen once said that, you know, one of the three myths of life is that, you know, you are what you have, you are what you do, you are what other people say about you. Yeah. And I would say for those that resonate with the three, that's like the three cardinal sins right there because we're trying so hard to be um, noticed and admired by the world. And so like for me, because I prioritize doing um, an achievement, like contemplative spirituality is really important for me 
because it means that the first move of my day isn't about doing, it's about being. It isn't about achieving, it's about surrendering. It's about consent. It isn't about performance. Mm. And that takes every effort in my heart to do because I want to get up and start my day on email, on drafting a letter, on writing a, a chapter of a book, on starting a sermon, on whatever, on learning a bunch of stuff I can teach on Sunday. And it's the Lord continuing to say, I just want to be with you. You don't have to perform and I'll give you what you need when the time is right. I'm, this morning I was in the the morning scripture of the gospel and Jesus says um, that I will, when you walk into places of persecution and performance, I, the spirit will give you what you need to say in the moment. Mm -hmm. And it was like so hard for a three to not um, sort of want to plan and perform. It's like that reliance on being with God, that God will give us what we need uh, and that we don't have to achieve it. So that's one of the things when it comes to like centering prayer, stillness and solitude, like those are really important things for threes, for twos, for sevens, because we validate I'm our life seven. based on performance. <laughs> yeah. Which is all about the next thing, the next experience, the next sort of uh, mountain you can climb, then that'll be better. And then you'll experience life for what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And like, so the I contemplative tradition is really important. I haven't important. been on a plane in months and all of a sudden I'm like, hmm. <laughs> This seven needs to right. go somewhere desperately every yes. other week. <laughs> new, 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 new. And I need to post on Instagram where I was from my plane. You can see these mountains, right? It's it's that sort yeah. of mentality. Try every food, experience all yes. the things. Um, you know, but I would say, uh, you know, the they say for sevens, it's uh, fear of pain. It's, so, I, I mean, That's right. something like that. And uh, uh I, I think that in the last few years, I've, my father's gone through illness. And so I've had to force, like, have to, you have to look at the thing that's hard. Like, this isn't going away. This is a long-term thing for him in his eight, older years. Um, and I, I hope that it has formed me in a healthier way. Uh, that mm -hmm. the sevenness has been rounded out a bit um, because – this isn't the kind of pain you can shove down and ignore. Like you have to look at it and have to be confronted uh, by it. Yeah. Confronted by it. Um, yeah. Now in, in church land may push back. If you, if you disagree in my experience, maybe it's the culture of the churches I've come from. A lot of leaders are the eight um, in the big churches, um, hmm. which uh, means they're they're not super pastoral. They're called the pastor, but they're more the business executive type leader has been the model in a lot of churches. But you're a three and you were leading a large church. Um, so uh, tell me about that. How are you, what are you seeing in church leadership? How do you approach that based on your number? Uh, what do we do to balance that out? Yeah, there's a lot of things Um in fact, I'm on one of my workshops, helping every type ask the right questions about their leadership is really important. Um, so like, I, I think one of the reasons we see a lot of eights, we see a lot of ones, we see a lot of threes, we see some sevens leaving, leading uh, large churches is that by and large culture rewards um, performers. Um, they also reward um, strong personalities um, provocation is really interesting for people say something I've never heard before. I can't tell you how often I would hear at Mars Hill. Oh, that was a good teaching. Cause I hadn't heard that before. 
Um, and it's like, well, you haven't applied 95% of the things you have heard in your life, let alone needing to hear new information again. Um, so there is that sense of, and that gets back to novelty. Some of that stuff we see, it gets back to assertive driver leaders that we respect. And, um, I, th- I think for, for that sort of type a aggressive, assertive personality, they're not bad, first of all, but, but what I, what I try to do always is offset myself with differentiation. So like, um, I recently hired at Mars Hill, an amazing preacher. Her name's Ashley Island. Um, she's a person of color. She thinks different than me, but we share the same heart for King Jesus and what we want to see in the world. And so it was like, I didn't hire her cause she was a woman. I hired her cause she's on fire for God. And she happens to be a woman who's a different, um, skin tone than I am, who brings a perspective culturally that I just can't in my own mm-hmm. sort of, you know, limited view. And so, um, as threes and, and these sorts of personalities, it's good to find people that you can put at the highest forms of leadership that can challenge you. It can challenge your person, your sort of read on everything and to bring something new and distinct to the table. So I highly recommend having the kind of humility where you don't, you, you have an opinion, but you're willing to lose, you know, being willing to lose. Uh, I think in the past in America, we've seen that as a weakness Um, but wow, what a strength it is when you can honor some voices around you while still it not being a core conviction that you're violating when you're willing to lose. Um, so those sorts of things I think have been helpful for me in mega church leadership land of just putting myself around people that think different than me and giving them authority to push back on my ideas. I love that what you're saying, being willing to lose, uh, most people aren't, uh, even if you're not a highly competitive person person. I don't think I'm super competitive, but nobody wants to lose. It's humiliating. You feel bad. Losing is, is sad and bad. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is, is, is you're actually perhaps losing more by always getting your way in terms of the types of leaders you will attract to your leadership. Because if, if you're like a driver and it's your way or the highway, then you will only attract a certain caliber of leader who's willing to acquiesce. Mm. I think to surround yourself with really high capacity leaders means that you have to figure out what you're willing to lose at because it makes space for them to have wins and to come in and to make a mark on a shared collaborative thing that you're trying to do together. Nailed it. That's it, AJ. That is it. It's this, the uh, law of the lid is it John Maxwell who talks about like people, if, if, if it's your, if you are the leader, you are the lid. And if people keep banging their head up against that lid or that ceiling, because you won't give them any um, vent or outlet to come Mm -hmm. either come up or even rise better than you in some area or another, maybe better than you isn't the right word, but you know, have a success (laughs) or have an idea different than people get tired of their head being banged on the ceiling and they leave. Yeah. 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 And obviously we're talking about my book here, the Enneagram for spiritual formation, but I would say if you're looking for a really great read as a listener around this conversation, um, Beatrice, Beatrice Chestnut wrote a book called the nine types of leadership. Hmm. And she explores the Enneagram in leadership with one another. And I think it, I've used it on retreats. It's helpful for staff members to name their strengths and weaknesses as leaders and the invitation that we have then to understand how 
we sort of navigate this world and leadership structures, um, that's a really great resource to have. Oh, so good. Okay. I'm going to put that in the show notes for people. Um, you talk in your book, you've, you went back a few minutes in the conversation to, you talk about, um, personality and identity are not the same thing. And so Enneagrams, you would say fits more in the personality level. Can you talk to us about the yes. you use in the book of the tree? Yep. So when we look at a tree, for example, imagine a tree where you can even see its root structure. That root structure is your identity. That's your belovedness. That's not up for negotiation. That doesn't change from day to day. What does change is what comes out of that root system. So imagine that trunk coming out. That's your personality. That's what you're revealing to the world about who you are, about how you live, right? About your behaviors. So that is what is uh, socially conditioned and also part of your genetic predisposition that you were born with. So I think it's both nature and nurture is what your personality is. They say around the age 20 is the age of your purest form of personality because you have hmm. enough life experience, but you don't have so much. Sometimes we get things put on us, responsibilities later in life that we have to sort of manipulate our personalities as a strategy to get through whatever season that we're in. So if you're struggling, if you're 45, if you're 60, if you're saying, I still don't quite know my core, humiliation is really helpful, but also um, the one that you humiliated most by. But it's also go back to your 20s, that time where you maybe you had a little bit more freedom in your personality. Um, and what did you do there? How did you show up? What motivated you? That can be really helpful. So that, that root system is your identity. It's that you're beloved. What comes out of that is your personality and how you sort of manage and steward your personality will showcase itself in the fruit of your life. So then you have the, the buds of the tree, right? You have the fruit that's growing. And sometimes our personality is really beautiful. And so we bear all sorts of good fruit for the world. And sometimes our personality is really not so beautiful and we can bear all sorts of bad fruit or be barren for the world. And the idea that God has given us is that we're called to bear fruit in this world to make disciples, to actually, you know, the fruit of the spirit coming out of our identities, out of our personality and into the world that you were designed to taste good for the world, that they mm -hmm. would enjoy God through you. And so that means that we have some work to do on our personalities. And so throughout the book, every type gets a couple practices. They're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. So you can pull whatever you want from whatever type if it's helpful. But I have this thing called upstream and downstream practices. Upstream are these practices. Imagine going into a lazy river. You have to swim against the current, right? Downstream are the ones that when you get in that raft, it just takes you naturally. So there are some practices for every type that are just more natural than mm -hmm. they are for others. The contemplative tradition for a three is really hard because we're called to be and not do. So that's an upstream practice. I got to fight for it. And what happens in our spirituality is we usually circle what we're good at we ignore what we're not, and we call that following Jesus. We do the same with the Bible. We circle yeah. the passages we like. We ignore the ones we don't, and we call that being a Christian. And the problem with that is over the long haul, we have sort of a lopsided spirituality where maybe you filled your head with a lot of information, but your emotions are still pretty non-existent, and you're not engaged in your body in the world. Um, or it might be that you're, you're so emotional, but you never actually challenge yourself in reason and in processing information and in reading theology, things like that. So like the idea is that we would have a holistic spirituality that we're called to in the Shema, that 
You should love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Well, typically Christians pick one of those dimensions of being human, specialize in it, and ignore the rest. So we need holistic practices that we can commit to over the course of time to grow more into the shape of Jesus. Okay, I just said a lot. Let me back off there and just create some space here for you to interject, comment, ask questions. That's so good. I, I mean, if I'm speaking, if I'm interviewing someone who's a communicator, uh, you make my job very easy. You know, I just have to poke at something and you can talk for a full hour. So it's it's great. I love it. People are here, people are here today to listen to you. They don't need to listen to me. Um there's, there's so much you just said in there. Uh, I'm, I'm literally just going through my head, which, which rabbit trail do I want to go down first? Um, let's talk about the rule of life. You didn't mention it specifically, but as you're using these illustrations, I'm thinking about how we order ourselves for our formation. What is a rule of life? And as an Enneagram seven, it sounds very restrictive. So (laughs) please tell me more about that or tell us more about that. It sounds very Anglican really. It does. It's historic in the Christian faith. Uh, okay, let's go, let's go to a metaphor. I like using metaphors. Imagine uh, a vine, and it's growing, and it's growing all over the place. The soil's good, blah, blah, blah. But you can't sort of grow it in a direction because it's just all over the place. Weeds get in, et cetera. Well, you attach a trellis to it. Um, or have you seen a stick attached to a tree just to get it to grow in a direction? Um, or until it's mature and strong to stand on its own? That's the idea of a trellis. Um, we need commitments. We need disciplines so that we can grow the vine consistently in a direction. Otherwise, you know, there are some church traditions where it's all about the vine. There's no trellis. So there's abundant life. It's just chaotic. And then there's other traditions where it's all about the trellis, which is just a dead piece of wood. And there's no life on the vine. There's no life there. There's no vine. It's just dead wood. So you go and you do the religious thing. You check the box, you move on. We need both. And so a rule of life is to say, okay, I need a dead piece of wood in my life that I'm going to commit to this practice at this time in this place every day or every week or whatever, whether that's Sabbath and actually doing that well, or whether that's your morning quiet time, or whether that's uh, a, a weekly walk on your favorite hike where you're praying with God on the walk, whatever that could be, right? Whether it's serving a soup kitchen, whatever that could look like, that's your trellis because you're saying it's kind of like no one has ever said in a relationship, oh my goodness, you have date night. How religious, like you do that every week. <laughs> how religious that you would have a date night. It's like, no, no, we commit to that time during the week because we're both going to show up there and we're going to engage each other. Well, the rule of life is like that. It's saying I'm committed to a date with God every day or every week, whatever that could look like for you. And I'm going to show up. I think it's Brennan Manning that said half of spirituality is just showing up. And if you leave your romance with your partner to spontaneity and you never plan anything. Same if you leave your romance with God to spontaneity and you never plan anything. Oftentimes life gets filled up. It gets busy. We're rushed. And then we look back and say, where did all the time go? And what was I really doing with all that time? So a rule of life is saying, I'm going to show up in a certain place in a certain time with God, with a certain practice, and I'm going to commit to it. And I realize there might be moments that it's dry There might be moments where I don't want to get up. I don't want to do that thing because I'm frustrated with this situation, but I'm going to continue to show up because I'm committed to it. Sort of like showing up for the gym. Who wants to do that? You know, especially when your alarm hits at five in the morning. Well, you have that goal and that goal is what leads you to keep showing up. 
I think that's one of the things with the rule of life is really important. When you lose the why, the what becomes religion. Mm. So like if you just show up and you don't realize why you're showing up, that really what we're after is the presence of God. We're after becoming more like Jesus. And if you lose that why, then you can have all the what's in the world. You're showing up, you're reading your Bible, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're serving. And you've lost track of the why you're doing what you're doing. It then devolves into dead religion. And before you know it, it's just not a very compelling faith. You can't really articulate why you're doing what you're doing anymore. And so for any rule of life, you don't just need a what. You need to make sure you're constantly naming your why. Because that why is going to draw you into commitment and conviction, even when you don't want to do it. When I think about, you know, when you talk about that, the, from, for a lot of people, going back to earlier in our conversation, the only, if, you, if, it's, if it could be called a rule of life, really the only one they had was, I'll go to church on Sunday. All the go to church, yes. The church was the rule of life. And that's it. But, but then for the Gen Z and the millennial, they began to forget the why. And so the statistics, as you say, before the pandemic were showing more and more like the people weren't going, you know, it was like one in every four weeks or whatever. So this rule of life became a mm, kind of came a, if I feel like it of life because the why was gone. And now the, even that is gone. Yes. And yes. so what is left as my roommate, I love that. Just been thinking about that for months as she said, well, I guess we're on our own now. Like we got to figure out and not on our own, like in a despairing way, but on our own, like we have to decide if we want this for ourselves. <laughs> what <we> that is, <laughs> what's our rule. <laughs> that's exactly right. That is exactly right. You nailed it on that. Yeah. So in, um, in the digital space, because I, I mean, in, in this podcast, we like to talk about digital stuff um, because digital isn't the only part of our life, but it is a huge part of our life. Do you have any rules in your or have any guidelines in your rule of life or things you would suggest to people around their relationship to digital content or yeah. screen time or things like that? Yeah, I, I'm pretty addicted. Um, just confessionally, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle for me. Um, so I, uh, I try not to sleep. First of all, I, I think it's, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. Um, he was a German theologian that stood up to Hitler back in the day and died for it. Um, he said that we are silent at the beginning of the day because God deserves the first word. And we're also silent at the end of the day because God deserves the last word as well. And that was such a referendum on my spirituality because how often was the beginning of my day, turning off my alarm on my phone and immediately sort of voyeuring straight into social media or something. And then the end of my day was, you know, also on the phone reading an article or social media or sports or whatever before going to bed. And I just had this like still soft whisper in my, my heart one time of, of the spirit just saying, Hey, what if there are better ways to start and finish your day than in a digital format? And it was like the beginning of my awakening of like, yeah, I don't know that I want my bookends of my life to be on the phone. I certainly, um, as a dad feel more, um, you know, <laughs> if you saw the social dilemma on Netflix, I mean, it's such a, it's so sad. I mean, so many of these tech giants, they don't let their kids come near screens for myriad reasons. Um, but I, I start my day, uh, in, in quiet where I, I make my French press. I'm a coffee snob. Um, we're all snobs somewhere. I'm a snob about coffee. So I'll make my French press for my pour over. And that immediately moves me to be in the scriptures and in prayer on my porch. And I cannot have a phone within 10 feet of me. 
I just can't do it because I will so quickly say, oh, I need to make a note about that for my sermon. And then before I know it, I'm in full on research and then I'm checking Twitter and I'm like, whoa, I'm sure like God's like, hey, we were just having a beautiful chat. And then where did you go? Because now I'm here all alone and you left me. Um, And I've just been really convicted. I mean, that's not a new conversation. So many people are talking about it. Um, John Mark Comer is a good friend of mine and, um, I did some teaching for them at Bridgetown out in Portland a few years ago, and he's a pastor and author. And, um, he invited me to participate in their Sabbath rhythm as their family. And so they have all of these amazing family rituals where the phones go up, they make a big cookie dessert together. They eat at tables. It's just full on community and family for like a full 24 hours. And it's just a beautiful rhythm of hiking in the woods all of that stuff where it's just like, oh, this is so much more life-giving than the ways in which I allow technology to dominate my life. And so reclaiming Sabbath, I think, is really important. Um, And just being aware of screen time and how we are being discipled so often by the cultural currents of news media, of social media, and really of entertainment has such a greater voice in our life right now than the word of God, than stillness prayer, than deep conversations with your spouse or your friends or your children. And I just think we've lost something. And it may describe why some of the numbers are trending the way they are um, for just commitment to the body of Christ, because we're being inscripted. I mean, hello, scripture, the root word is script. It wants to give us a script, a narrative to live by. We are inscripted by so many other scripts throughout our day that we just feel like these horcruxes, if you're familiar with Harry Potter, who just like <laughs> put our soul in all these different directions. You're right? bringing, you're bringing have, all like, a you know, cohesive way. those, those uh, Christians who they don't like Enneagram and they don't like your Harry Potter. <laughs> you've lost them all, man. <laughs> They're gone. They're gone. Ah. <laughs> you know, but even that um, I find Enneagram has been helpful for me um, in understanding why I go to digital. Um, what is it that it's feeding? What beast is it feeding within me that, uh, actually I need to go somewhere else for this. So again, I'm all, I'm as an Enneagram seven, I think one of the things that would be true of us is we care most about our own number. And so I know the most about my own number and in it it's so for us again, it's like, what am I avoiding? Am I, I'm going to a screen to avoid mm-hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. something difficult, challenging, painful, even if I'm in the middle of writing like a difficult email, as in, I don't mean difficult, like the conversation, but just, it takes a lot of brain energy to focus and write and compose that. Well, um, I find sometimes I like want to break and want to go over to Instagram because it's like too much brain hardness. And I'm like, Oh, I'm avoiding, I'm trying to feed the beast of just like reward centers instead of actually like leaning into the hard thing. And, and maybe every Enneagram number would have their own reason for their addiction to a digital. Yeah. Those dopamine hits are real. I I do. And I don't hear you saying this either. I do want to suggest that, um, you know, we're not saying digital is bad. I'm really grateful for it. My goodness. Um, but I will say my over reliance upon it to deliver me from those hard, challenging things. Dopamine is a reward center. And that's why I think what we're finding right now is our whole brain structure is being altered through the way in which we are acquiescing so quickly into technological addiction. And a lot of it is for relief. I mean, before that, it was probably sports or whatever, right? You do these things for relief. And so you'll veg out for hours 
I mean, I grew up watching college football. You know, I don't probably didn't have much to say to Canadians there, you know, or hockey or whatever hockey. it is you're into. Basketball is a big deal. Yeah, sure. You got the Raptors, right? Great season a couple of years ago. Um, I, I realized growing up that um, I started asking questions. I would watch like a four and a half hour football game, four and a half hours in the bulk of my day. And I remember thinking to myself uh, about a decade ago, do I feel more restful and at peace on my day off after I've watched four and a half hours of college football? And the answer was no. I feel revved up. My brain feels tired. I haven't actually been creative and imaginative. I've just watched a screen and gotten wrapped up in the drama of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with watching a game here and there, but it had become sort of my rule of life that that's what I do above all things on a Saturday, right? And so it's those sorts of things of paying attention to how your brain is being restructured through the habits that you have. And we all have them. So if you're sitting down and saying, oh, the rule of life, what a religious nutter. It's like, no, 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 you actually already have a rule of life. But most of ours is just sort of, you know, just random shards of things that we put together. And that's the way in which we've decided to live. That's our rule of life. So. Yeah. Well, and, and, and even within that, it's this whole idea you're using other words, but it's the same thing as your, as your book says, it's spiritual formation. We are being formed mm-hmm. by the things that we do every single day. Um, you know, the way we spend our days is the way we spend our years, which is the way we spend our lives. Life. So yes. I'm so grateful for the internet. It's the only way you and I could be meeting each other. We're doing this. <laughs> we, yes, yay. we're doing this. Um, but also, how is it forming us? What is the content we are consuming, um, doing to us? And I think before, when I say before, you know, 5, 10, 20, I have an um, older brother who uh, is quite conservative on these issues since we were kids, I remember him coming in and I'd be watching Full House on TV and he'd be like, what are you doing? You're wasting your brain on this nonsense. And I mm. love those Olsen twins and I would watch Full House every week. But that Bob Saget humor <laughs> though was so bad. Uncle it was Jesse so bad. And uh, the, I, I still remember this thing, cut, uh, what is it? Cut it is out. out. Yeah, yeah. Cut is uh-huh. out. <laughs> so dumb i'll tell you though stamos still looks pretty good it's amazing how that guy has aged yeah he is timeless isn't he it's not really fair <laughs> so anyway, i got you off track but, so back to full no, i mean i'll just say that this you know this brother of mine i used to eye roll even 15 years ago early 2000s i would kind of eye roll he felt like a bit of it he felt a bit extreme in some of the views around he didn't have a tv in his house he was thoughtful about his engagement into the world of social media that began and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And now his children, how he's, how he's doing that with his kids. And I used to think it was a bit extreme and now I'm like, Oh, maybe you were right. Maybe again, not that we don't, not that he doesn't use these things, but that he's much more disciplined and thoughtful because he's aware of how it forms us. Yep. We're all just, I'm just catching up. I'm just catching up. (laughs) So, I mean, it's interesting you say uh, before we started the conversation, just uh, that there was sort of this window of time where, where um, people were really, um, you know, now we can't do as much of this traveling around, but people were, you were this traveling Enneagram salesman. I, I don't want to say it that way, maybe, but you were going around doing all kinds of workshops and training on Enneagram. Um, 
and what was, uh, and then things have changed now, COVID can't do that anymore, but what is sort of that core thing that people come back to and back to with Enneagram? Um, the, the why, what's the hunger? What is the hunger behind people's desire to learn more about this thing? Why is it so crazy popular? I think it's a cocktail of a couple of things. You know, it's one part narcissism. Like we really are interested in ourselves. Mm. Um, but I, I think that the other part of the cocktail is that people are more self desirous for self awareness than ever before. Mm. You know, we're seeing this right now with the racial conversation happening in America where, you know, emerging generations are like, wow, we need to repent from slavery because those institutions have, still echoed in the way in which we've created systems that aren't necessarily equal access for everybody. Um, so I think that there's emerging generations seems to be much more as a whole open to self-awareness and discovery, um, than ever before. So I think people are, yes, narcissistic. I am too. We want to know about ourselves, but I think we want to know about ourselves because we're also aware of our mischief mm. and we're like, okay, there's some real good I, I, I offer the world, but there's also some real problems that I, I sense um, I offer the world too. And, and I don't want another 30 years of these same problems um, on my resume. So I think people are more open to, uh, to growth than maybe they ever have been, at least that I've noticed in my short 40 years on this earth. It seems like there's a real hunger to say, if growth is out there, I'm interested. You know, even the amount of self-help books that are being sold right now is just a lot of books right now, according to my publisher, are not selling. Like Christian books are not selling right now. Um, fiction books, maybe a little bit. Uh, different sort of books aren't selling. But what is selling is self-help. Mm -hmm. People in this pandemic moment are saying, I want to grow. And I'm not suggesting that self-help is the best aisle for that. But ostensibly, that is where you go when you want to improve. So I think people want to mature in certain ways. So I, I think that's what we're seeing today more than anything. So really just to close this off, what is your hope then for the future of the church? Um, when you think about your conversations at churches across the country on Enneagram, <clears throat> when you think of your own big move from one type of church to another in the last number of months, um, what are yeah. you? when you think of the year that we've all gone through collectively, what is the hope of the church's future for you? What are you excited about? I think when we look at it from an individual standpoint, my hope is that um, the, the church, meaning the people of the church, myself included, will take spiritual responsibility for their future and their own maturity. In other words, we won't rely on an institution to do that for us. We won't jettison the body of Christ because, you know, there's some skeletons in the closet, but we will look within and realize there's skeletons in my own soul and that it's not okay to villainize everyone out there and to think I am sort of the, the unfazed sort of pristine, um, you know, Christian that everyone should, you know, um, all, you know, the problems out there, those people, right. My hope is that, um, we would take spiritual responsibility for our maturity and that each of us would do our work, our part to become more whole. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the Enneagram is an individualist tool. Well, it's not because what it, those nine personalities, some would call them the nine faces of God, meaning that God in the health of each of those personalities, there is an aspect of God that is revealed. Mm. 
And what that means and what I say to everyone who comes to my workshops is that we need people with different personalities around us because we image the presence of God more fully together than we do apart. And so it's not about me and Jesus, me and my spirituality. It's about saying I'm a part of something bigger and together we bear witness to the Godhead more than we do alone. And so I, I would hope people would do personal work, but then come into something bigger than themselves together and magnify the name of Jesus and seek to live out justice and mercy in the world. Amen. So good. <laughs> yes. I just, uh, I posted on Instagram and said, what should, what should I ask you? And I had a bunch of responses and uh, I'll, I'll call this a bonus because uh, maybe it goes in a different, I just looked at a bunch of the questions. And the one question that I thought I should ask that hasn't been asked yet is ultimately like, what can't Enneagram do for you? Uh, I think people love to talk about the pro, the positives of it, but I think the person's asking in this question from Instagram, um, maybe I think they're really asking like, what are the downsides of Enneagram or the blind spots of Enneagram? But what is it, you know, as people explore this, explore your book, what would you say as you write in it? It can't help. We have this hopeful future. We're going for it. We're going to be formed spiritually, but Enneagram can't help you with blank. Um, the Enneagram can't replace Jesus. Um, the Enneagram, you know, it, it's one of my rules. I have four rules at the beginning of it. And so it would be those four rules. It, 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 it can't become your identity. And it does for some people. They go so far down the rabbit trail of these things where the Enneagram becomes what spirituality is now about. You know, the Enneagram is just a tool. Um, so it can't replace Jesus. Um, the Enneagram can't become what your spirituality is about. It can't become the language that we use to talk to each other because the gospel is hard enough to communicate. And when you impose this sort of language, when people come in and don't know it, they feel like outsiders. So we can't let it become the dominant framework in which we talk and imagine ourselves. The Enneagram is meant to be a private understanding like Google Glasses that gives you information on the lens, but it doesn't replace what you're seeing. It doesn't become that view. It's not virtual reality. It's just information that helps you navigate the world about your own self and about how others act and, and perform. Um, so I think I would stop there for now, but there's a lot more I could say. So but I, I think the biggest thing is the Enneagram is not Jesus. So it's not an alternative way of, of, you know, being a Christian. Yeah. AJ, if people want to find you, they want to get this book, uh, get more of your teaching and content, where do you want to send them today? Yeah. So, uh, the Enneagram for spiritual formation is sold wherever books are sold, Amazon included. Um, and I pastor a church in the Charleston, Mount Pleasant area of South Carolina called St. Peter's church. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram through simple searches through my name. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear about your journey as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on We're Made Digital. Beautiful. It's been a joy. AJ, thanks so much. I love the conversation. It was good to get to know AJ on this podcast a little bit better. Next up on the podcast next week, we have Grace P. Cho. She's a Korean-American writer, editor, speaker, and a poet, but she's the editorial manager of Encourage. It's an online community uh, that empowers women to live with courage. So they have a new book out and she's going to talk about the editing process, what it looks like to work with an editor and what it looks like, particularly as a, a woman of color, what does 
that look like for her to have herself edited by typically um, a publishing company that is predominantly uh, not from her cultural background? And so we're going to have a really great, rich conversation next week. Come back for that conversation. Thanks, of course, to Wycliffe College, who makes this podcast possible, to Compassion Canada, who make this podcast possible. These amazing sponsors, you can check out the links below if you want to know more about studying, if you're looking to grow uh, in your own discipleship and spiritual formation, I encourage you to check out Wycliffe College. And if you're looking to um, really care for the needs of other people, if you're feeling like this winter you're just so focused on your own problems, it might be good to think about somebody else's, go to compassion.ca, check out the link below and just browse and see what's going on in the world. Just Even just to get informed, would love for you to check that out. The last thing I want to highlight to you before I go is a tutorial video series. If you want help with communications, marketing, branding, websites, Facebook, Instagram, all the stuff to do with that for your church, for your leadership platform, you know, for the ministry that you serve in, check them out. I'm going to link below and we'd love for you to take advantage of these free videos, basically taking my best brain knowledge and the knowledge of some smart friends of mine and trying to offer that to you for free. Although normally you would pay for it, but we're offering that to you for free. All right. See you next week when we talk to Grace Cho. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.